Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us today, the Reverend David Apple, to continue our discussion on Hebrews. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well, Willie. Good to be on with you guys. How's the uh, weather down in Paducah? Uh, it's, a, it's actually a beautiful day today. Um, there was a big tornado that kind of came through, not through Paducah, but this area of the country anyways last night. But today it's 60 and sunny. Spring feels feels pretty good, man. The uh, Everything is starting to, the shoots on the leaves are starting to pop out. It's uh, Spring is the best time, I think, in, in the Mid-South here. Zellin, how about in, in the uh, prairie? <laughs> uh, what's this spring you speak of? I'm yeah. not really sure. <laughs> well, it Lent uh, actually derives from the Latin... <laughs> today's pretty warm actually things are actually kind of melting it's a little muddy out today but we're nowhere near spring it's all still very much dormant so it'll be a little while before we start seeing any greenery here in central illinois it's kind of springy even the birds are back it's a little bit weird to see i feel bad for them because i know another snow is probably going to hit before it's done so sorry birds but uh, we're enjoying the good weather while we have it. Speaking of central Illinois and where I live, though, I do want to let the audience know this, that in the near future, you might notice I'm absent from certain episodes. Uh, that's because last week I received a letter from my internet service provider that they are discontinuing internet service for all their customers in one month. So they gave us roughly a month's notice. And where I live, even though it's equidistance from three major cities, it's two miles away from a town of 20,000. I only have one internet option, and it's it's going away. So looking into satellite options and stuff like that, but the, the way we record the podcast requires decent internet, which I won't have. So if I disappear, I didn't uh, run away. I didn't go off to Russia or anything, and don't contact Missing 411 or anything. It's just a, <laughs> it's, it's just a technology issue. Are you, and, Willie, uh, are you sure? Are you sure this isn't a Roman sixteen thing? Mark and avoid. You know, you're not. You're not just purposely <laughs> avoiding certain episodes, are you? That's right. I'm breaking fellowship with you because of the upcoming Pietism episodes. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> that that so, seems to fit your general mo. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just you know, go away, change my name, shave my beard, dye my hair, just to get away from you folks for a while. <laughs> Especially our North Dakota friend here. Yeah, no. Exactly, <laughs> but no, that's that's the deal. No internet in a uh, civilized society, so you know maybe feel a little bit like Uncle Ted in that way. But that's all right. It, it could be worse. It could be worse. So sure. we'll be fine. Yeah. 
So anyway, we are continuing the discussion of Hebrews that Zelwyn and David had a few episodes ago. David, where did we leave off on that discussion? Yeah, we the last episode that we did on Hebrews was mainly about Jesus as the the great high priest. So a lot of it would be under the the category of Christology, the person and work of Christ. And certainly that is, I think, that's the really the heart of Hebrews. And um, that's what, at least when I, in discussions I have with other pastors or with uh, members, that's often, those are the passages people want to look at, the passages that talk about Jesus as, you know, our great high priest who encourages us. So yeah, that was the last episode. I don't know. I'll, I'll pause there. Well, all right. So the text is going to continue from Christ as our high priest, forever abolishing, uh, really, that that Old Testament priesthood, uh, as we understand it, now leading to this Hebrews discussion of all Christians as priests. And that, and that brings up a lot of questions, right? What does it mean uh, that there is a priesthood of all believers? Does that mean there is no longer any clergy class? What do we make of the church using the word priest for so long? So all of these things we'll get into because they are very important discussions. Uh, Zelwyn, where should we start? Well, I think if we're going to be talking about the priesthood of all believers, maybe we should just start there by defining what we mean, because unfortunately, there can be a lot of baggage behind the term and a lot of confusion about what that might mean. So maybe, you know, maybe we just want to start with a basic description of what that is. Sure. Either one of you gentlemen want to uh, want to take that definition? Sure. The that those words, the royal priesthood or the priesthood of all believers, don't come from Hebrews. I think the concept mm-hmm. is in Hebrews, but this is this is in First Peter. Um, if you want a Sades passage, you go to First Peter for this, and there you have Christians described as um, yeah, royal yeah. priesthood. So First yeah. Peter two nine, First yeah. Peter two nine, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for God's own possession to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light or something approximating that. And so, yeah, so that's where we get the idea. And then it gets imported into this kind of discussion there. Now in, in first Peter, then the, so you might just kind of in your head, think of, okay, the status of priests. Certainly, uh, Willie, you use the word class, like, you know, there are, there is a class of people who qualify as priests. So there's something to do with um, the status of a Christian, their standing before God. Um, but then in First Peter 2, it goes on to talk about offering spiritual sacrifices. And I think that that's really, you know, the status and then also the work of priests. This is where we would draw some distinctions between, certainly between the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the sacrifices of the New. Right. Would you gentlemen agree that the sacrifices of the Old Testament are forever done away with by virtue of Christ's atoning death? <laughs> I should hope so. <laughs> right. But right. well, we have to say it out loud. I mean, what's the reason why we have to have this discussion today? Well, I suppose because you have people who are trying to bring back like third temple kind of nonsense, this idea of reinstating the sacrifices if you're a dispensationalist. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy ideas out there about the purpose of sacrifice and especially the purpose of blood sacrifice. But the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament have indeed come to an end when Jesus shed his own blood on the cross. In other words, the the ultimate sacrifice has come 
and there's no longer any need for a bloody sacrifice, right? Correct. And yeah, like you say, it's it's this dispensationalist idea that American Christianity flirts with in large part, or, or absolutely endorses, depending on what kind of denomination you're in. So far that there are churches who are sending money to groups in Israel so that a third temple might be rebuilt and animal sacrifices reinstituted. And as a Christian, I can't think of anything worse that you could do Yeah, <laughs> as far as blaspheming God. <laughs> And and demeaning the work of Christ, uh, and I, and I know that they don't think that's what they're doing, but it's unquestionably what you're doing. You are saying that Christ did not fulfill the old covenant in any sense, and that it must continue on. Uh, this i this idea of animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. But if we read through Hebrews, we see that nothing could be further from that 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 could not be further from the truth, because Hebrews makes the point very clear that the blood of bulls and goats don't do this. And that Christ now as our ascended high priest has superseded that earthly, the Levitical priesthood. Can we say it that way? Yeah. The great, the great word for Hebrews there is once and for all, right? So there is mm-hmm. no more, there's no need for, a, for another blood sacrifice. You know, as you're describing this, it's, it's, it jumps out to me. Like if you think of the, the Judaizing tendencies in the New Testament, that are that are specifically mentioned, like think of Galatians, have to do with circumcision, right? But I I can't think of did anybody even think like, hey, we need to go back to the blood sacrifices? You know, the, it's it's sort of it's it's almost who would who would actually try to reinstitute circumcision or who would try to reinstitute the various Sabbaths? I mean, some some groups do, but to try to reinstitute blood sacrifice is almost a a greater affront than even what the Galatians were doing. And you can see how severe Paul is uh, when he addresses that whole problem. Yeah, it's an interesting case because Paul's ministry does overlap uh, with a temple that is still standing. So sacrifices are still happening. And there are some references to the, the sacrifices that they're that the Jews are still doing. And they're uh, basically dismissed, um, if you really read it. And especially if you if you agree with the church that Paul wrote Hebrews, then it becomes even more clear. Yeah, I mean, this is that's an interesting tension that they live with, and these laws persist, and and now we have a new form of Judaizing tendencies. So that there are Christian pastors out there telling people to keep kosher and to keep the other ceremonial laws and things like that. There may well be health benefits to avoiding pork and shellfish and certain types of other foods. I mean. Nobody's really keen on eating bats right now for some reason. <laughs> and I'm just kidding. We know where that really came from. Yeah. But, right. <laughs> but anyway, but it is interesting that the church, especially the modern church, has flirted again with Judaizing. And and it happens largely in the evangelical context, perhaps with these Seder these quote unquote Seder meals that they do. And other little things like that that lead to even bigger Judaizing practices, and and that can become you know rather rather problematic. But I think something like Hebrews really speaks to this. I mean, Galatians is going to speak to it more directly. But if we want to have a connection with the Old Testament temple, with the idea of the priesthood, Hebrews is going to give us a more fully orbed understanding of how that works now that Christ is risen and ascended. Yeah. No, I, I think that's well put. 
But, you know, when we're dealing with the question of these Judaizing tendencies and trying to reinstitute bloody sacrifices, I, I, I think, like you say, I think they mean well, ultimately. But sure, yeah, you, you really do end up coming to a point where you are almost re-crucifying Christ all over again. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, people are not going out, these people are not going out intending to blaspheme Christ. But when you have a guy like J- John Hagee, who essentially says that the Jewish people are saved by their covenant keeping, and Christians are saved by, f- by faith or something like that, that's a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, what do you... And, and and that's really the kissing cousin to like what you have in modern Roman Catholicism, which says that any road can in theory lead to salvation. That's another form of that, just a very specific form of it. And it only applies to one other group. Unless you're a Protestant, then you might not be able to make it, but that's beside the point. That's right. Yeah, unless you actually believe something, then you <laughs> then you're in trouble. The the flip side of this, you're you're talking about, you know, the return to a bloody atoning sacrifice, but there is a maybe a more historic <laughs> kind of Judaizing that I, I don't I, I think I heard somebody describe the sacrifice of the mass once as kind of a, a continuation of a Jewish understanding of uh, of sacrifice that an atoning sacrifice has to continue to be made, and certainly they would they would talk about an unbloody sacrifice, right? They're not, you know, they don't envision the sacrifice of of animals, but the the sacrifice of the mass, if it's understood as a atoning sacrifice, is. It at its root the same issue, isn't it? Sure, and Rome is crafty because they never really formulate what they mean by the perpetual sacrifice of the of the mass. So there are two or three competing definitions, and and so at least two of them are very problematic. And you get the idea that the third one that isn't so problematic is just there to make Protestants shut up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, when when the Protestants convert, this is the one we give them. Just so that they can, you know, come along. Right, because, I mean, what you receive in the Eucharist is, in a sense, a sacrifice because it's Christ's body and blood that's given for you. But we are not re-offering Christ's body and blood to God as an appeasement. Right, right. Right? And that is how it is understood in some Roman Catholic circles. You could argue that that is the majority view among Roman Catholic theologians. Isn't that what, in our confessions, that is, I think that that's the view that, that the Lutheran confessions, and especially like when you read the the Apology, is it in Article 4? I, I want to say this is where you get the distinction. Maybe it's not Article 4. Maybe it's 24. But where, where you get this whole discussion about the, the distinction between an atoning sacrifice and a Eucharistic one, and the Lutherans are perfectly willing to say, yes, the Eucharistic sacrifice goes on, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, but the atoning sacrifice is, you know, once and for that's what Hebrews is saying, once and for all, that's, that's finished. Right. Well, that, that kind of just brings it all back around to what we, how we got into this discussion, you know, saying that, you know, there is no such thing as a bloody sacrifice anymore, but this Eucharistic sacrifice or these other kinds of sacrifices, the spiritual sacrifices which go on are what the priesthood of all believers is offering, right? Yeah, yeah. and we'll, we'll flesh out in the other segments what these sacrifices are, but this also dovetails nicely into, like, say, our fasting discussion and, our, and, and these Lenten discussions that we've been having on Word Fitly Spoken. This idea of giving up 
of offering something is is a New Testament concept as well. It's a biblical concept that carries over even into the New Covenant. So that our deprivations, although they seem silly to the world, what we deny ourselves, okay, or what we give up to God, to the world seems like we're losing something, but to the Christian they actually do matter. God does honor these sacrifices, and by the virtue of Christ, God even accepts the sacrifices that we make and that they're not in vain. So if there is a royal priesthood, it's a priesthood that uh, continues to sacrifice in this new, even one might say even better way. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way to put it. Absolutely. Yeah, when we're dealing with the the spiritual sacrifices, especially in Hebrews, I think you're you're very frequently speaking in terms of the sufferings which we undergo as Christians. Yes. The kind yes. of deprivations, you know, because the world are imposing things upon us, and I, that, I mean, that is that is in a sense a sacrifice as well. I mean, I'm looking like at the end of Hebrews chapter ten, for example, where it says, you know, recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, you know, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So this idea of suffering for the sake of the kingdom, of undergoing discipline from our Heavenly Father, I think is wrapped up in this discussion. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, a- absolutely. David? Yeah, the uh, the Christian does offer his or her body as a sacrifice, right? Not in, not to be burned up or something like that, but every the, the Hebrews will talk about the fruit of our lips and we shouldn't see this as a division between, you know, I worship with what I say, but what I do with my body, you know, is somehow separate from that. The worship of the New Testament is always unified, right? Body, body, words, and mind, all three of those things fit together. So if we offer the fruit of our lips, we also offer, you know, the work of our hands and the life of our body. But guys, I thought the body was just supposed to be abused with first article gifts so that we could show our freedom <laughs> and how much more we understand the gospel. Yeah. Am I wrong? Right. This, well, the worthless maggot sack. It, you call it a body, but we call it a maggot sack. Right. Yeah. We brought that up in the last episode. Um, <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. We're, well, and, we're not playing you know, or anything. Tell that to the saints who endured being sawed in half. You know, maybe they should have just drank more. I don't know. That's right. Yeah, being put in the uh, iron bull or <laughs> made into torches or fed to lions or <laughs> crucified or beat yeah. to death or stoned or or not exactly or, having their best life now. Yeah, so so come back to this point on on the royal priesthood then. The every Christian here this this is I don't know if this is a great insight of the reformation, but I think it's a valuable one that every Christian is to see him or herself as a priest. And there is no, there's no class of like, those are the high priests over there. And here's the, you know, the kind of lesser priests and over there are the Levites. And then there's the rest of the people. Now there are, there's still clergy and there are ordained ministers, but that is a different thing, right? Than the, the priesthood of the Old Testament. Well, I mean, you, you do have first Timothy five seventeen. you have to deal with the elders, you know, worthy of double honor, all that stuff. 
But th- those are some of the misconceptions, though, that we'll get into as we go through the text, because sometimes the concept of a royal priesthood can be abused, or certain things can be magnified unnecessarily, to the to the point of there's sort of a radical egalitarianism that, that comes out, which is not really what you see in the in the Bible either. But good discussion so far. We are at the first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, word fitly spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Word Fitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple, talking about the Epistle to the Hebrews. Well, last segment, we had a, a talk about the nature of the priesthood, how that's understood, perhaps, in other groups, the nature of sacrifice, that's to say, the nature of the work of the priests. So let's dig into the text of Hebrews specifically now. Last episode, we talked a lot about Christ, our high priest, and so now we're going to talk about the church as a nation of priests, what is the connection between, then, Christ the high priest and his body, the church? David? Yeah, this is. I think this is a, a good connection to make, not just when you're looking at Hebrews, but kind of throughout. The, the, the way that we talk about Christology ought to impact the way that we think about ecclesiology, or what's true about Christ should also then be reflected somehow in his body, the church, right? So for this, in this case, we said Hebrews doesn't actually have a verse that says, you know, the church is a community of priests. That's the first Peter's passage. But what you have presented in Hebrews is um, not the explicit statement of these things, but the kind of the more implied meaning. So all of this conversation about Jesus as the high priest then leads into Okay, so Christians now have access to the throne of grace, and so um, let me just give you a good passage that I think pull, that brings this out pretty well. In chapter ten, kind of at the end of the the discussion of Jesus as the high priest, you have chapter ten, verse. If you go to verse twenty-two, you're kind of dropping right in the middle of a thought, but I think our listeners will will have no problem with this. It says, "Let us then." Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure waters. Okay, so because of Jesus's priestly work, the church has access to into heaven, right? The church has access to the throne of grace, which is another Hebrews, that's that's Hebrews language there too. 
And so what's being implied here is that the same way that the priests in the Old Testament had access into the earthly temple, now the church of the New Testament, without distinction, we can say this, the church without distinction has access to the throne of grace through Christ. So um, what was true about the high priest now becomes applied in the brothers and sisters of Christ who form this community of priests. I think you can elaborate on that point a little bit more too when if you turn into the chapter 12 towards the end of that chapter where it's written in verse 28 therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire and so this idea of the kingdom having come to us you know through Christ and having received it you know that kingdom that cannot be shaken Therefore, our response becomes this offering up to God an acceptable worship, you know, which is, to use the language of Romans, our, our spiritual sacrifices. So I do think that you see here in various little hints and ways in Hebrews, this notion of a priesthood of the believers. You just have to recognize that, like you say, David, it comes first from who we are in Jesus and then what we return to him in thankfulness and praise, right? Yeah, the some of the this is an interesting thing in in the New Testament. Think of like Philippians 2. Okay, in Philippians 2 you have the the song of Christ, right? That is one of the the great expressions of this the the divinity of Christ, right? Being in very nature God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So you have this real high Christology right there. Okay? And, but it is part of a command, right? Paul doesn't see like, okay, now I'm going to teach you about Jesus. And then later I'm going to, you know, in a totally disconnected way, tell you what you should do as, as the church. These things blend together really, really beautifully. So Christology leads to ecclesiology and what's true about Jesus then is reflected or it has implications for, for us in the church. Well, which is why he, Paul so often ends his letters with exhortation. You know, those parts of the epistles that we don't read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and isn't, yeah, that that's in a way, that's a good way to think of how Hebrews is structured. The first, I don't know, 10 chapters, right, are are very much, here's who Jesus, here's how you should think of Jesus. This is, he is the priest like, not like Aaron, but like Melchizedek. And then the last three chapters are, just like you said, Zelwyn, their admonition. And it's not a letdown, right? It's not like, here's the really important stuff. And then, well, okay, I guess I got to give you some practical tips. Like this, this stuff is seamless. <laughs> if Paul knew what he was doing, he'd put his clickbait at the front, you know, like seven practicals. <laughs> but as it is. No, I, I I think that's exactly the point. And when we were talking about like in chapter 13, where Paul goes on to say in Hebrews, you know, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares and so on and so forth. This isn't a, a completely unique, different section, like totally yeah. new on before. This really is the, the fitting conclusion. Really, yeah. Right? And so, right. And that's, this is another point to make here the the work of priests i think certainly we we want to think primarily of worship right and and hebrews is definitely a great place to look at for kind of what is what is the the new testament teaching on 
on worship and what it means to worship. But what you just pointed out, Zelwyn, is a good point to make that the worship of the church continues beyond, you know, just the assembly of uh, of believers. That the the life that's lived outside of you know the quote unquote church is still a part of our worship, even though you know we wouldn't we would make a distinction and say you know this is there's a difference right between the corporate worship of the church and your own what practice or your own your own calling or vocation sanctification dare i say there you go <laughs> willie you're being quiet no i'm listening it's it's a good discussion and you're right that distinction between the corporate worship and then private let's let's call let's say private devotion um, and when we hear that, we we often think of well, your prayer life at home, or maybe family devotions. But there is a personal piety that exists that is different depending upon the Christian. Just as we're called to bear our own particular crosses, so too are we called to serve in various vocations. And so the way in which we witness, or the way in which rather we carry out our faith, is going to look different from person to person. The mother, for example, has a different duty than the single man somewhere. All of our duties are to God, but the mother and the father, certainly certainly the father, for example, have a duty to pass this teaching on to their children. Well, maybe the single guy playing Fortnite for eight hours, one, should cut back on Fortnite, but two, you know, he's going to witness to, say, his friends or his family. Um, his life is a testimony to Christ. And it may bear witness to, I mean, even his own parents um, when when they're not Christians or something like that. So, so there is something of a custom made <laughs> kind of of worship that happens in life outside of the divine service. And I think we limit devotion, piety, worship when we only think of it in terms of an hour or so on a Sunday. When it's only in the context of the service, the mass, if you will. So, so um, what you're so you're absolutely right. <laughs> Go ahead. So what you're saying, Willie, is that my uh, Christian Minecraft server is pleasing to God. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> it, de- it, it 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 depends on the confession of your he's, particular avatar, Zelda. Well, he's building Hagia Sophia again in Minecraft, so it's all good. One hundred percent pleasing. Yes, <laughs> he honors that, no question. <laughs> And um, it, it, it does become silly. I mean, and, you know, honestly, we, as we've said many times before on this very show, that calling everything a ministry is silly. You know, it, it's, it's well, I'm going golfing with some guys from church. It's the golf ministry. Bro, just go golfing with your friends. Go golfing <laughs> with your brothers in Christ. It doesn't have to be a ministry. It doesn't need to be put on the website. Just go be a human being in the world. It's fine. You know, when we put these artificial things over it, then it, then it almost is like a pressure that doesn't need to be on it. A lot of our life as priestly Christians is lived just doing everyday normal things, but always being mindful of who we are in Christ and what that means, you know? And so, yeah, your home, a Christian home, guys, is going to look different than a secular home, or at least it should. And I'm not saying put a live, eat, pray, love decal or something on your, on your, on your wall or something like that. But, you know, yeah. our art certainly is going to be different. What we allow into our homes, even something as simple as 
in, in the Christian home, when we sit down to a meal, and it should be at a table, please, Christian families, try to eat at least one meal a day together as a family at your table. When we sit down, what makes our meals all throughout the year different? Well, the, the spiritual sacrifice which we offer up by giving thanks. There we go. And that's a very nice way of saying we say grace. Say a prayer, yeah. And you're absolutely right. It is, it is a spiritual sacrifice of both praise and time. Because our, our when we're hungry, our stomach wants to just dig right in, right? It wants to grab that first bite of food as quick as it can. But we discipline the flesh, and even though it's a very brief time, we pause even though the flesh really wants to dig in, and we thank God for the food that we receive. It is a sacrifice of time, but it is first and foremost a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Absolutely right, Zelwyn. <laughs> and well said. I think this discussion of, you know, these not everything is a ministry and all that kind of leads back quite nicely to what we were, what we were alluding to in the previous section, which is that the priesthood and the spiritual sacrifices which we offer you know, the misconceptions which we might have about them. You know, does the the idea of a spiritual priesthood eliminate the idea of pastors or, you know, clergy or something like that? Or, you know, what does it mean for us to be spiritual priests together? I th And not saying that not everything is a ministry kind of implies that there are distinctions within the body, doesn't it, Willie? Yeah, you're going to give, you're going to let me say the distinction stuff. You're going to let me take the, <laughs> take the heat. You no, take no, you're absolutely right. <laughs> There is, there are distinctions between the body. It's something, okay, so you'll take something like Galatians, mm -hmm. which says in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. Right. And people go, aha, there's no difference. But that's talking about standing before Christ. Right. You know, insofar as people are justified. Obviously, in creation, there's a difference between male and female. Even within the New Testament, there is, uh, excuse me, even within the epistles, there is a distinction between slave and free. Right. Let's go to the epistle of Philemon. So those distinctions, even though Paul is saying in, in front, in view of Christ and his redemption, those distinctions mean nothing. As far as who we are as people and in our calling, those distinctions mean everything. So there is a distinction between the husband and the wife. There are no two husbands in the Bible, <laughs> or two wives. Although there might be a husband and more than one wife, that gets a little tricky, well, that's... Uh, but that's not, that's, not, that's not what it's supposed to be. <laughs> People, we have a way of fudging things where we shouldn't. Right, right. Anyway, and so even within the New Testament then, even within the Church of Christ, there is a distinction between the laity and the clergy, whether we want there to be or not. It goes back to First Timothy, or like we said, that the elders are worthy of double honor. No, that's not lifting up the clergy here. It's simply saying that they are called into a very important and specific vocation. They are ministers of the word, and by virtue of that, they should be treated with honor. Your mother has been called to be your mother. You treat your mother with honor. So too, we treat uh, the heroes of the faith with honor, and we treat God with honor. There is an order to creation that necessarily divides creation right. into various vocations, disciplines, and, yeah, hierarchies. There are authorities. Anarchy is the enemy of Christianity. Anarchy is the tool of the devil. Order is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and order assumes authority where it is and submission where it needs to be in a God-pleasing way, 
not with abuse, okay, not being an overlord and overbearing, but there is a godly authority established by God in creation. I was talking with David with this during the break, and I think uh, one way that we put it then that kind of really encapsulated this is that even though there remain these distinctions within the body, that doesn't abolish the spiritual priesthood because we possess the spirit equally. We all have access to the spirit equally. Yes, a man and a woman have the same Holy Spirit and the same access to the throne room of grace by virtue of the mediation of Christ and the intercession of the Holy Spirit when we don't even have the words to pray. Male and female have that, young and old, the, the different races, whatever distinction you want to make between men, we have that same, as far as, insofar as we're Christians, we have that same Holy Spirit and that same access to God. Right. And that's, that's, that's the nature of the royal priesthood. But, but, it, but as far as who we are and where we find ourselves, there are distinctions that still exist. Yeah, right. And that's not a bad thing. We might not like it. We might bristle like teenagers at home who think dad's stupid. You know, and uh, you know, it's like when you're 17, you think your parents are dumb. And then when you're 23, you're surprised uh, just how much your parents learned in those few years. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, and, and but that tension still exists. And if we're not careful, uh, we can really read things like Hebrews or Galatians in the wrong way and come to the conclusions that certain denominations have that none of this matters. Right that uh, marriage doesn't matter or parental authority isn't important. And we, we lose a lot, even in a worldly sense, when we give up that. There's also a, the, the glory of the new Testament, the glory of the greater covenant too, is that, you know, the, the possessing of the spirit equally, you know, like the prophecy of Joel uh, at Pentecost shows that, you know, we are in a way surpassing even the the ancient priesthood, the ancient Levitical priesthood, because in those days, in the days of Moses and Aaron, it was only the the priests and it was only the prophets who had the high, who had the Holy Spirit. Yes. And, and especially in the priesthood, not necessarily with the prophets who are, who are godly men. Right. Called by God. But in the case of the priesthood, because of sin, it led to a haughtiness. And it led to an ungodly form of hierarchy, whereby the priests became greedy and lorded their authority over the people and really extorted the people, especially by the time we get... Well, you see it in the Old Testament, too, so so nothing new under the sun. And certainly you see it by the time of Christ in the Second Temple. I think you could argue the Second Temple may be even more corrupt, at least more convoluted than the first. And, and so because of sin, e- even what God had established became corrupted. And people, also because of sin, come to resent the priests in, in certain ways. And it's not like the New Testament just invented being kind to the poor and welcoming the sojourner. <laughs> you know, that's in the Old Testament as well, but the uh, priests had long since abandoned that. Sure. And if we look at each other and say, this brother or sister of mine in Christ, shares the same indwelling of God that I do, made in the image of God, now remade. And even though maybe they're richer than me, or poorer than me, or different than me, in Christ, they are my brother, they are my equal, and I will love them 
as I love myself. And that's what the Christian's called to do. We actually do view people differently. And if we don't view our neighbor, and especially those uh, who are of the household of faith, with charity, then we miss the spirit of the priesthood. Because if the spirit of the priesthood of all believers is that we have access to God in prayer, okay, that we can go to him, then what should we be doing with it? Well, the neighbor who is different than me, the neighbor who is who my sinful flesh wants to say is worse than me, I should be praying for that person. I should be interceding for them just as Christ intercedes for me. So that our work as priests ought to be in service of both God and neighbor. I mean, that's the summary of the law, right? Love thy neighbor, or excuse me, love God and love thy neighbor, right? If you guys think I'm off the rails here, please let me know. I think you're right. And and part of the the value of kind of recovering this this sense of being priests is for this very reason, right? That you you don't view yourself as you know, somehow separate or above this, this was the problem with the high priests is that they came to view themselves as, you know, this elite class, where the whole idea of priesthood in I think this is why it was established in the Old Testament, and why it continues in a, in a broader way in the New Testament is that you, you are representing those who in the Old Testament, the priest was a rep- representing those who were coming to worship, right? And so if you view yourself as somehow better than those who are worshiping with you, you're you're sort of unable to fulfill that basic function of a priest, which is to, in Hebrews, you have this great talk about being able to sympathize with those who are in weakness. And the the priesthood, the the what's a good word for this? Solidarity. I mean, there there is some value, that word can be abused, right? But there is some value to recognizing the solidarity that we have with one another and even with those who are outside of the faith that we have we use our access to represent our brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, also those who are outside of the faith and just as one final quick note before we go into break if we view the 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 priesthood of all believers as being a way of saying well there's no one over me you know we're all kind of equal therefore there's no such thing as order or you know pastors or anything like that well, then what do you do with Hebrews thirteen seventeen? Obey your leaders and submit yeah. to them. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's amazing yeah. what you can do when you take Scripture in context. <laughs> yeah, the Bible has this way, doesn't it, of kind of holding everything, you know, nicely together. Well, hey, we're on, we're on to the next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple, talking about the Epistle to the Hebrews. been a very fun discussion so far. We've talked a lot about the nature of the New Covenant, what that means in our various vocations, things like that. Now let's pause for a bit and really look at the text of Hebrews, and let's contrast the Old Covenant with the New Covenant and what that means with regard to the work of the priests. Does the New Testament priesthood excel the Old Covenant priesthood in every way? Zelwyn, you want to start us off? According to Hebrews, yeah. I don't know. Okay. What I'm no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, pack it up. This has been a word fitly spoken. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just over and over again, you have in Hebrews the discussion of, you know, Christ is superior. Christ is greater than Moses. Christ is greater than Melchizedek. Christ is greater than Levi. You know, all of these things point over and over again how the new surpasses the old. And so, yes, when we're talking about the new priesthood as comparison to the old priesthood, and I think, you know, we can make that direct comparison across saying, you know, the Levites in the old are what Christians are in the new. In every way, our priesthood is superior. And I think it really just comes down to the details just to show how that happens. Right, David? Yeah, I think so. The uh, Just a couple of key words, if if people are listening to this and then reading the Bible, that's always a good thing, right? When you're reading through Hebrews and you get to talk about the household of God, there's this great, the, the Greek word is just oikos, which could mean house or household. And the difference there is the difference between a building and those who occupy the building. So uh, in the Old Testament, the temple is the house of God. And the priests are, you know, part of the household then. And in the new, we have a better temple, um, a better house. And so we also then are a better household. And Christ is over the household of God, which is one of the ways that Hebrews talks about the church. But probably the best, I, I think, Zellin, you'll you'll agree with this. I think this is maybe part of your Lenten series that you're working on, is the discussion of Mount Mount Sinai and the new, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And you'll find this in Hebrews chapter 12. And there you have, you know, the discussion of here's everything that happened at Mount Sinai. And here's the things that happen, you know, under what he calls Mount Zion. But uh, what he means is in the church of the New Testament. And I think if we just look through those, that'll help. Yeah. And just, just to be clear, that was my Advent series. Okay. okay. Contra, contra, doing Hebrew shelf because I'm I'm Joel posting in in Lent, but that's beside the point. So good deal. But yeah, this this contrast between the old mountain and the new mountain. You know, you've come to the the old the what may for you have come to what may not be touched. You know, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet because they could not even endure the order that was given. I mean, this is all Hebrews twelve. If even a beast touches the mountains, it shall be it shall be stoned. This idea that the old mountain, Mount Sinai, the old covenant for that matter, is something that was full of darkness and gloom and it was it was inferior in every way because when we have come to Mount Zion in chapter 12, verse 22, into the city of the living God, the innumerable angels in festival gathering and to the church of the firstborn, you know, all of these things point towards the greater covenant, you know, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
I mean, over and over and over again, you have this contrast between what was old and what is new and the new being superior in every way. One of one of the other ways, yeah, absolutely. The another way that Hebrews does this, you have the shadows. Is this no, that's Colossians, isn't it? The shadow and the reality. But the other the other thing that Hebrews does is it talks about like the in the Old Testament, the you had the bodily cleansing, right? And right. Uh, in the new in the New Testament, it's the heart that is sprinkled. Now that shouldn't be understood as if like the body is no longer touched or as even if in the Old Testament there was no, you know, spiritual reality. There was still God's grace was imparted through the old covenant, right? It's the same grace under two different administrations of it. And the new one is better. <laughs> and so the the way that Hebrews does this is it says things like the priests in the Old Testament uh, had their bodies washed but we have our consciences sprinkled. And so it's that idea of the the deeper that this goes into you, the deeper that it touches you, the better it is, right? And so right. the external stuff was good and it was fine. And there is an external aspect to the, the New Testament, right? It's not like we only talk about spiritual things, right? There are, you know, there is water in that font and there's bread and wine on the altar. There is there is hands that reach out and touch and touch you. So, but the, the greater thing is that there's a fuller sprinkling or a um, permanence to the new Testament that was not there in the old Testament. Well, let me just use a couple of examples to illustrate that, that I think can be pulled very nicely out of like Hebrews chapter 12 or just Hebrews in general. The first one being with the Holy spirit and the coming of the spirit being, you know, in a, in a greater way with, kind of alluded to before. In the Old Testament, like Moses kind of laments the fact that not very many people have the spirit. You know, it's always kind of limited. It's always kind of held off and kind of confined. Whereas in the New Testament, you have the outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost, which shows that the spirit has come to us in a greater way so that we are now worshiping in spirit and in truth, as Jesus says, in a way far greater than the Old Testament ever did. And I think the other one that I want to bring out, too, is that imagery of the mountains again in chapter 12, where Mount Sinai, for example, is described in terms of exclusion and keeping off and distant so that they are approaching yep. God, but they're right. always not really there. But whereas we, on the other hand, because we are the living temples of God, the living temples of the Holy Spirit, God is within us which means that we are in his presence in a way far greater than the Old Testament ever knew. Yeah, absolutely. The The difference is between like a copy. So this, yeah, here's the, the Hebrews thing. I was thinking of shadows. That's the Colossians stuff. But the tabernacle and, and Hebrews, I think, includes the temple in with its discussion of the tabernacle is always referred to as a copy of the heavenly, you know, the heavenly place. And what Hebrews does is says, now those copies are done away with, and through the flesh of Christ, we have access into, you know, what the the actual thing itself, we have access into heaven. And so this is, if, if there's anywhere that's going to talk about heaven on earth, here is the, here's the connection, here's kind of the, the access point anyways, where Christians have access into the heavenly realities. And of course, we sh we should be clear here that this whole discussion follows 
chapter 11, where you have the, the fundamental thing is that these things belong to us by faith, right? right? And without faith, there is no access into heaven. You can stand in that church as much as you want, and you can go up and, and, you know, you can receive the sacrament without faith and it will do you no good. It will harm you, right? Right, right. Well, and that's that's not to say, though, that the Old Testament saints didn't have faith because the whole point of Hebrews 11 is, the you know, pointing out the faith that they had. Well, what also is at work here is that with the coming of the Spirit, with the coming of the new age of the church, I mean, I'm probably going to sound a little dispy here, but that's okay. Because, you know, this is a, a different time. You know, we are come to the, the last yeah. days. The end so, of all things has come upon us. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because we live in this time now, God has poured out onto us a greater measure of the Spirit, and, a, and we live in a time of greater knowledge and greater revelation. So what we see and, and you know, touch and handle kind of a thing are things that the Old Testament looked forward to, but they never really got, they never really got there. But now because we have come to Mount Zion and to the assembly and to the church in heaven, we have come to that which is greater because God has poured himself out in a greater way. Willie, I'm probably starting to, to wander into some <laughs> dispensationalist kind of talk here, but I mean, help me out. No, no, I think, it, I think it's, it's good. One of the things that the Church of Christ is always accused of by this type of dispensationalist, the one who would say that the old covenant ordinances persist or will return in some way, is they say, well, you're a supersessionist. And that's the idea that the church replaces the Old Testament community of faith, right? That, that the church of Christ supersedes the old covenant temple worship. And to that I say, yeah, guilty as charged. Yeah, that's what I believe. <laughs> But if we want to put a more nuanced spin on it, any Christian has to be a supersessionist because, because that's what the Bible teaches. And it teaches it in this way, that the earthly temple, as we know it, especially the first temple, second temple, that is done away with by virtue of what Christ has done. And so all of those things, it's not replaced in the way that the dispensationalists think, because dispensationalists see the Bible as different epochs. So God is right. working this way for a time, then he stops, then he stops. Well, no. There is a gradual progression toward the final fulfillment of all these things, and that has been found in Christ. And so from the first sacrifice in the garden, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, okay, all of those things, those covenants are building toward the newer and greater covenant, and that was always the intention. The church was not a plan B, as some teach. Some teach that, well, because the Jews rejected, then Christ, then the gospel went to the Gentiles, ergo plan B. That's nonsense. It was always meant to be, and you can see this in the prophecies about salvation in the Old Testament, it was meant to be a universal salvation. That is to say, salvation offered to all, regardless of of whether they're Jew or Gentile. And that was the promise. Well, the promise is content, is fulfilled finally in Christ. And so, yes, the greater reality is not an earthly temple with animal sacrifice. The greater reality is the church of Christ, the church of God, which was established by him 
as he finishes his salvific work in his incarnation, death, and resurrection. That church, capital C, supersedes what came before it because the whole point of everything that came before it was to point toward the perfect that was coming. And that perfect was Christ and the church that he established. And that's the church that we are a part of. We don't want to go back to the old ways. So when someone accuses you of that, just say, yes, I do believe the Bible. <laughs> and that's okay. And, and that's what we need to do, uh, because it is so spiritually dangerous to, it, to go back to animal sacrifice or old ritual. And I would add that the Judaism that these dispensationalists are attracted to isn't really a good representation of biblical Judaism. Right. One, if there is such a thing as biblical Judaism, they would have believed in Christ by now. But two, what you really have ritually is a medieval form of Judaism. That's what, when people think of, of Judaism, that's really what they have in mind. The Seder Supper, even the forms you see in something like Fiddler on the Roof or literally any TV show or, or movie today is really the liturgically more derived from things that are coming probably from the medieval period. And that's just a historic fact. I mean, that's just kind of an oddity there. And so that's, I'm not trying to demean these people, but simply say that there is exclusivity when it comes to the Christian faith and that one must embrace Christ in order to be saved. And I would argue that embracing Christ means to embrace what he has revealed. And that means embracing what he has revealed about worship and about the nature of our relationship with God and how we receive forgiveness and how we commune with God. And, and so to not have Christ, of course, is to miss everything. But then once we believe in Christ, it is a submission to everything that Christ has taught us in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Maybe I took it farther than you wanted, Zellin. <laughs> That's a good point. I, I sometimes hear people talk about the temple curtain being torn, right? And so since since the temple curtain is torn, that's a sign, right? Obviously that the temple and its worship is done away with. And right. so, and that's true. That's right. But then what you're saying, Willie, is the next step is what has replaced it, right? Because it's not just that the temple is gone and therefore no no form of worship is <laughs> is any better than any other form right is and what hebrews is so great at pointing out for us is that the new and better way is through christ right not just everyone can kind of do whatever they want but it's we look to christ and what he has established for us now certainly there is freedom there not everything is in the realm of of command here command or forbidden there is there are some things that are free but what i often hear is this a good recognition the temple curtain is torn but maybe not quite the same recognition that the new thing that has been established the sacraments of the church and the worship of the church replaces those and we aren't just left kind of to make things up as we kind of see fit I'm, I just would like to, to clarify, though, Willie, are you saying that the Bible regulates our worship? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know what you're trying to do. I know what you're trying to do. The, I'll put it this way. The Bible absolutely informs our worship. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> anyway, a little bit of a inside joke there, I suppose. But That's okay. Yeah. 
But the Bible certainly does inform our worship, and the Christian church springs up at a certain time. And to add to your point about the, the temple veil being rent in twain, David, I would also submit that an even more vivid picture of that being done away with is found in the year A.D. 70, when the temple is utterly destroyed. And, and that's an interesting bit of history because it forever separates Christianity from temple worship, but also causes the gospel to really go out into the world in a way that it didn't before. I mean, Paul is is going out into the known world, but it expands even further once the temple is is done away is literally done away with. And these are hard things for us to talk about because I know that people out there are going to hear this and say, "Well." You're all manner of epithets, right? How can you say this about about the you know this religion or these people? And what I'm submitting is is that the first Christians are Hebrews who grew up worshiping in temples and in synagogues and or in the temple and in synagogues, and they understood the nature of Christ and what the new covenant was. They didn't, they didn't dwell in the shadows, and when they started to go back into the shadows, the apostles were there to call them away from that. And that's really what you have here in Hebrews, this balance of, okay, this is how the Old Covenant is fulfilled in the New, and this is how really the principles laid down there are continued into the New Covenant, but really made more perfect in the New Covenant. And and so we are really just trying to show you the clearer and the better way here. And it really is spiritually dangerous to flirt with these ideas that there are two ways to heaven or that sacrifices need to return. Uh, it's just not, it's not okay, fam. It really isn't. And and the, the proof that this is the biblical truth is, is that a lot of churches today will fight you on these things and condemn you and cause you all manner call you all manner of names. Not to mention the fact that when it comes to Judaism, there's even modern political spins to it that complicate it and cause things to become even more heated in the debate. Right. And again, we are not commenting on current geopolitical issues. Necessarily. <laughs> well, I mean, we're not. I mean, we're right, not. Right, it's right, just, right. But, but, but the confusion is there. Maybe as my closing thought, then, just as a way of kind of putting a nice little bow on that, I think it's interesting that within the first, you know, couple, even the first hundred years of the church, you have this very conscious separation from Jewish forms of worship as being, you know, part of the old and what is passing away, even before the temple comes to an end. So I think, you know, when they, they took what was good. I mean, we do have some elements of our worship even today that is, bar, you know, well back into the practices even of the synagogues. But there's much that was left behind because they recognized that something greater had come. You know, that, that in this moment, with Jesus having come, with the New Testament having come, the old was passing away. And so, yes, our worship became different. Our, the way that we approached God became different because, well... It is different. We have come to what is greater because we have come to Mount Zion. Amen. Well, guys, thank you so much. David, always good to have you on. Hopefully we'll have you back soon. Absolutely. Lots more to, lots more to discuss. This has been A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at 
word fitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi and David Apple. God love you and God bless. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God.